Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. On this side of the border, the House of Commons resumed sitting after their summer recess yesterday. And uh, it was uh, promised to be a rocket rocket session because the uh, opposition conservatives said they were going to really try to hold the government's feet to the fire and a number of things like pipelines, etc. But there was a surprise as soon as they sat down for the beginning of the legislature yesterday. My attempts to raise my concerns with this government were met with silence. And as I said in the House, the government must be challenged openly and for me to publicly criticize the government as a liberal would undermine the government and according to my code of conduct, be dishonorable. That was a former Liberal MP, Leona Alislev, who crossed the floor yesterday after that speech and became a Conservative, uh, much to the uh, joy, I guess, of, uh, of Andrew Scheer and the Conservative Party. Uh, raucous applause and cheers, etc., going up on this, and she's uh, actually going to be placed into the uh, Conservative Shadow Cabinet. Uh, so a lot of feedback about this. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it certainly does grab headlines, that being somebody who actually crosses the floor and changes political parties. Joining us to talk about this is Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, specializing in Canadian and U.S. politics. Hi, Barry. How are you doing today? Hello, Bill. Is this a big deal? Well, I wouldn't say it's a big deal, but it's a deal. It's a little deal. Maybe it's a moderate deal. Um, uh, certainly, uh, well, there's some interesting things about the, the background and, indeed, the writing of the, uh, of, of, uh, I hope I'm not mispronouncing the name, uh, Ms. Alislev, um, uh, in, in terms of her decision. Uh, look, uh, politicians are about ambition. Uh, self-interest is, is a concern for them. Uh, the writing she represents, and I don't want to suggest that she isn't sincere in all the things she said. She may very well be. Among liberal members, her background certainly suggests that uh, she probably was on the right side of the Liberal Party. Uh, she uh, has a background in the military. She has a background in business subsequent to that. Uh, but the writing she holds is actually was one of the most marginal, perhaps the most marginal. I'm not certain about that, but she only held it by 1% or 2% in a, uh, in a year that the Liberals had a big sweep against the Conservatives. Um, so she may very well have just seen the handwriting on the wall and uh, with her finger in the wind, if I can throw in a few more metaphors, <laughs> and suggesting that it was a better uh, better shot. We have an election coming up in the next year. So the intensity of the discussion and the narrative in Ottawa is only going to increase. And that she thought that, that perhaps this was a good time to, to, uh, to, to change horses. Um, the irony, of course, is that although... The Conservatives have been nipping at the heels of the Liberals in terms of we're, we're limited in number of public opinion polls. Nanos is the only one that's really been publishing polls mm-hmm. in uh, in recent uh, months, and there may be still some small biases there. But they, the the um, Conservatives and Liberals were virtually tied up until the uh, really up until around Labor Day, uh, and then a couple of things happened. The main one though was the departure of Bernier, um, and for, if I'm not even certain that's the reason, but it was coincident with that. All of a sudden now, the Liberals have opened up a big lead. In fact, for the first time in a long time, they're now in double digits. The poll I just saw this morning uh, had a 10-point Liberal lead. So that's kind of interesting. Nonetheless, um, she was in a very marginal riding because we're really talking about the, the, uh, the defection of her. And I think she felt that in that riding of Aurora, if one looks at a map of the GTA and particularly the uh, rural areas surrounding the GTA, uh, Aurora's right at the edge of it. So virtually all of the ridings north and west of where she represents are already conservative. Her riding was won by the narrowest of margins, just a couple of points, I think. Um, uh, there's a couple of other things about her own background. She had been um, a parliamentary secretary and had been demoted. Now, that's not unusual. 
Um, the liberals or any party that's in power wants to kind of keep a lot of the backbenchers happy doing something. And being a parliamentary secretary is certainly a step on the way up to becoming a cabinet minister. Uh, however, at the last uh, time there was a, um, a, a shifting of uh, portfolios, she was moved out of it. Now, she may be, I, I have no reason to think that she's not a highly competent or an indeed principled person. But coincidentally, it just happens that politically her writing is very marginal. And uh, my hunch is that she probably felt that uh, the conservatives would be a better vehicle to run in the election that will be you know, held in just, just a little over a month's time. Your your background on the writing, I think, is, is very important in this. And, and I, again, she, as you mentioned, she may well have been exactly well-intentioned about this and for philosophical reasons, and, and I get that. Uh, but just added on to what you were already saying about that, uh, in the last provincial election, of course, this past spring, uh, the Conservatives won that, that riding handily. Uh, so you're right. I mean, it's it's going to be blue. I think she understands that. And uh, this could well be a, a matter of political survival. But if she is, uh, as some people characterize to Barry, a disenchanted backbencher, uh, get in line. I mean, just about every backbencher at some point is going to get a little ticked off with their government uh, because they're really kind of sitting on their hands, not doing a whole lot of anything. Yep. Well, that's the fate of backbenchers in our uh, in our system. Um, uh, there was, I guess Pierre Trudeau made that famous quote that, uh, that, that you know if you get a couple of blocks from Parliament Hill, Parliament's full of nobodies that nobody knows, and um, people in her situation are among them. She perhaps did feel that she was on a, a better track because she had originally been given the parliamentary secretary position, uh, you know, coming fresh out of the election. And I, I think she, she's well thought of because not all liberal backbenchers even had that, but she got shifted out of it because in fact they try to turn things a little bit and turn them over so that everybody gets a little chance of doing something. Um, but uh, again, I, I can't read, you know, read her mind and to suggest whether that was pivotal or not. If I was advising her, however, I would have certainly suggested that the, uh, even though the liberals have moved up in polls in the, in the re- most recent weeks, that indeed the conservatives are probably a better ticket for the future, but partly because of the provincial results. But rem- remembering in the federal election, the liberals swept just about everything, and not just in the city, but in the GTA. There's only a couple of, of seats here and there that in the entire GTA area, the greater Toronto area, that in fact the, uh, the liberals didn't take. Um, and, um, well, anyway, I, I, don't, I don't want to cast aspersions on her personally without knowing too much about it. However, from the background, from the context, I think the Conservatives were the smarter move. Well, and it's got some people scratching their heads because I know that she tweeted as late as uh, July, third week of July, uh, that she was proud to be part of this Liberal team as we head into 2019. Uh, you wonder if there was any single incident that maybe put her over the top. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, look, uh, there's always a bit of trolling going on um, in, in terms of Parliament. People develop friendships a little bit, not so much as in the old days, across party lines. And indeed, there may very well have been some um, conservative members who become friendly with her, just sort of checking out to see whether she was discontented or not. Sometimes I, they, it wouldn't have started with Andrew Scheer making an approach to her. It would have started with little hints here and there. Uh, that's the way it normally happens. This doesn't happen all that often. It's certainly not unprecedented. Uh, Belinda Stronach, uh, Eve Adams, certainly there's a couple of others in the, um, interestingly, uh, coming from writings, well, what, what, I guess um, Adam was was in um, Mississauga, but uh, he, uh, the, it's the same kind of area Belinda Stronach was representing. Mm-hmm. The area where, in fact, the it's, it's a, as Toronto, Toronto's very liberal generally, except for a few downtown areas where the NDP strong, but when you start moving up north of the city in the York region, especially around Aurora, uh, that indeed though that is a swing area where if the liberals 
are vulnerable anywhere in the Toronto area, that's the first place you look. And the election results from 2015 would indicate that her riding especially was like that. But there may well have been some other Conservative members who sort of detected the fact that she was not too happy with things. The fact that you say when you're in the Cabinet or the caucus now for the Liberals, you say nice things about the Prime Minister, of course you do. What else would you expect people to say? Yeah. The Prime Minister wants to make a visit to your riding, you say something nice about him. Um, the comments she made today, criticizing the fact that Canada's international position is slipping a little bit, perhaps so. Certainly, things have not gone swimmingly for the Prime Minister generally, which underscores that other interesting phenomenon, which, in fact, you would think the Liberals would be slipping. And, in fact, if anything, just in the last three weeks, they're moving upward. Um, and maybe that has to do with this. I, I don't, I'm not sure that, um, that Scheer has made a, a huge impact in Parliament either. But we're going to be heading toward an election campaign in the next 12 months, and, and things will become interesting. Well, there's, there's there's really no net gain here for the Conservatives, really, is there? Because, I mean, Bernier left, and now she's get, basically going to take his seat. Yeah, I think the problem with Bernier isn't just that he left. Um, it's that, in fact, because I'm not sure at the moment that I see a huge success for, for Bernier's movement. And we'll see. You know, I, again, I could be surprised. The, uh, the illegal... Um, uh, refugee issue or illegal immigrant issue may resonate more than it, it has in the uh, than it has in the past. The problem with Bernier for the Conservatives is that the uh, the party is going to lose a certain number of votes if there are People's Party. That's the name of his movement. If People's Party candidates running against them, they're not the People's Party isn't going to win in very many places unless they've got an established MP like Bernier himself. I have no doubt Bernier is very popular in his own area. The Beauce. Um, and his father had represented that riding. I have no doubt that he will hold his riding. And there may be a few others, particularly in Quebec, that have similar views. Um, at the moment, I don't see any mass movement toward Bernier. But the fact that just the party is, is bleeding votes, that is the Conservatives are bleeding a few votes to the Bernier's movement, becomes a problem in, in, in marginal ridings. Let me, let me say the NDP's got a similar problem in British Columbia with the Greens. The Greens mm -hmm. are picking up, particularly in Vancouver Island. And it's not that the Greens are going to win so many seats but they're going to probably, or it seems from the polls right now, they're starting to bleed enough votes away from the NDP that the NDP will lose some of those seats to other parties, perhaps the Liberals. Yeah, and, and therein lies the problem. I, I agree with you. I don't think the People's Party is going to win seats aside from Bernier, but if they even take two or three or four percentage points of a vote in a riding, uh, those are probably votes that ordinarily would have gone to the Conservatives, so they need to be concerned about that. Sure. I mean, that's, what, that's why the uh, Reform Party split from the Conservatives back in the in the 90s, basically gave uh, Jean Chrétien a free ride for a decade. How do the voters react to something like this, Barry? Is there a pattern there? And you've, you've mentioned some of the more high-profile people, Eve Adams, Belinda Stronach, and others that have, have walked across the floor. Uh, I'm just doing this off the top of my head. I, and my impression is uh, that usually doesn't go well in the next election. The voters seem to say, well, again, I, I voted for you because you were a party X, and, and now you've switched. I'm not so sure I'm, I'm enamored of you anymore. Yeah, it didn't, in those cases, I think a really strong person, that's why I've no doubt that Bernier, uh, Bernier would be very strong in Bose. It's not as popular as I think he is. There's a family tradition there. If you've got a really strong um, local member uh, who's got strong name identification, I think it can transcend and he can bring people along to his party or his movement or whatever, uh, what, whatever it is. I think in the case of lesser-known people, I don't know how strong Ellis Lev is up in Aurora. My hunch is she was new in 2015, and I don't think um, um, she's all that well-known. I don't think people are going to go with her just on that basis. However, in her case, uh, the party may be enough. Um, so I'm not sure. I, I don't think that she would win Aurora for the conservatives based on the fact that they believe in her more than the liberals. However, 
she could have very easily lost the last election to the conservatives, and it may well be that now as a conservative that she'll be okay. So I, I, I wouldn't bet against her in that writing, given the, the numbers at the moment, and she must have made the very same calculation. Uh, but in the more general situation, uh, only if a, a, an individual is especially strong and well-known with a, um, a personal kind of constituency, as Bernier does, um, does in fact, uh, is, does it translate uh, into being able to switch having the, the candidates switch the, the constituency on their own. Uh, well, how does this impact the liberals then on the other side of the flag? I mean, they've lost a member right now. It's certainly not going to have an impact on the majority. The, the numbers are pretty significant there. But on the other hand, uh, you, you've already seen some of the blogs now, but aha, this is the first of a lot of, of you know, dissensions and cracks in the, in the system, etc. Or you know, do they just carry on? Well, they'll just carry on. Um, by-elections are perhaps an even better indicator. Uh, the, uh, the conservatives picked up that seat in Quebec in Chicoutimi, which was a surprise. Um, uh, there probably will be around, uh, anything's possible, some speculation that we might even have an earlier election called in October, um, based with the rationale being around the, uh, the NAFTA free trade issue with the states. I'm not so certain about that. If not, there will be a few by-elections that will be held, including the, uh, the one involving um, uh, Jagmeet Singh for the NDP in Burnaby. Um, and that, indeed, I think if the liberals should do let worse than expected there, that would be a much more significant matter. Look, this is a new story for today. It's the opening of Parliament. It's sort of the story of the moment. There was some surprise. They were able to conceal the... Oh, there was no rumors of this ahead of time. So they were able... The Conservatives, that is, were able to play it pretty pretty effectively. Uh, I don't think we're going to be talking about this a week from now in terms of being a hugely significant matter. If there were a pattern of Liberals losing by-elections, and sooner or later some of those by-elections are going to have to be called. There, there's a bit of a delay. Um, that um, I think that would be much more ominous for the liberals heading into the in terms of losing momentum heading into to next year's election it's still 12 almost 13 months away so it's not like it's tomorrow uh... There, uh and we've seen that on a number of files certainly including carbon certainly including the pipeline um, perhaps also with the refugee issue the liberals seem to be somewhat sort of floundering and feckless interestingly though the conservatives haven't really there, there certainly are, are circumstances such that we might think that uh, it's a great opportunity for Scheer to have really shown that he's a much more stronger, effective policy proposer than, uh, than the Prime Minister, because the Prime Minister hasn't been that effective. That said, he, it, 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 isn't, it hasn't happened up till now. And ironically, in these last few weeks, in fact, the Conservatives have started to slip, as has the NDP, and the, the Liberals are up. I mean, based on those numbers in today's, um, today's Nanos poll, uh, the Liberals might very well win a majority. Uh, up until recent, uh, up until this last one, I would have thought at best it would probably be a liberal minority. But you know, again, we'll we'll see. There's still a year, but till the next election. And and obviously, there are still a couple of balls up in the air right now. NAFTA being one of oh, them, and, sure. and any kind of a deal there that uh, that looks like it's going to be advantageous to Canada uh, could only enhance that position. Yeah, that, I mean, that's another matter I'd love to talk about another day. Um, but yeah, because I teach American government too. Um, that indeed, I think. In that particular sphere, I think Trudeau has been played it effectively. He, is, he does seem to be standing up to, to Trump. He's not allowed, going to allow himself to be bullied into meeting what now, there was a deadline at the end of August, now there's a deadline for the end of September. All the signs are that he's not going to be pushed uh, into uh, making agreements that he thinks are bad. I do think at the end of the day, if there's any kind of agreement, the Canadians are going to have to move a little bit and give allow Trump some kind of bragging rights about victories. He can claim victories over pretty modest, you know, a, a token kind of concessions. I think at some point uh, a little bit is going to have to be given, quite possibly in the area of um, of, of, of dairy, uh, you know, the, the marketing board for dairy. 
But um, but in general, I think that perhaps is Trudeau's strongest card at the moment politically is that he's not allowing himself to be bullied by the uh, by the Americans by Lighthizer as the representative of Trump. Well, we'll see how that goes in Washington today. Always a pleasure, Barry. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. Bye bye, Barry Kay from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, we mentioned that uh, Christy Freeland, the uh, lead negotiator for the Canadian NAFTA delegation is heading back to Washington to uh, resume talks. And uh, on the eve of that, well, some uh, much-needed support. I've been in touch today with Ambassador Lighthizer and his team, uh, and we agreed that we would continue to talk in Washington later this week. Uh, The specifics of our calendar we haven't quite yet worked out, uh, but we will be meeting in Washington later this week. Always the optimist, or so she seems anyway, Christia Freeland. But the, uh, the, the thumbs up that she got was actually from uh, Nancy Pelosi, who is the, uh, the lead uh, Democrat, of course, in the uh, House of Representatives. And, of course, it's anticipated that they may well win the House back in the midterm elections in November. So it will be them dealing with that. So her suggestion that there needs to be a three-way deal for NAFTA, I, I would think is encouraging. Joining us to talk about this, Marvin Ryder, of course, from the uh, DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, thanks for coming in today, by the way. Glad to be here, Bill. This this is good news, isn't it? It's not bad news. Let's put it that <laughs> way. It's not bad news. Anytime you can get an endorsement. Now, look, let's be candid about this. There are at least 37 governors in the United States who've said the exact same thing. Um, most of the senators have said the exact same thing. And yet, surprisingly, when asked to really stand up to Donald Trump and demand something, although they say all the right things for Canada, they just don't actually stand up and do that. Now, we have argued that's because until uh, just this last weekend, it was still primary season in the United States. And so if I'm running for re-election, say I'm a Republican running for re-election, Donald Trump, in theory, could back someone who's opposing me in my own party. So even though I'm the Republican incumbent, there might be another Republican who could knock me off, and therefore I'm afraid to take on Donald Trump. That should be behind them now. Yes, they still have to face an election against a Democrat if you're a Republican or vice versa. But uh, at least, you know, if you're the candidate now, you're the one who's still standing. So I would think that would give some people some backbone here. But, Bill, all I can tell everyone who's listening is we're T-minus 12 days. This is the 18th. The magical date is the 30th of September. So T-minus 12 days to something happening. Either we've got a deal, we don't have a deal. The deal without us goes to Congress. Would then Congress approve it, or would they punt it back to Mr. Trump? There's going to be lots of drama in these days and even the first few days of October. Well, if what you're suggesting is is going to happen, that uh, they develop a bit of a backbone, uh, I I would think that one of the telltale signs is going to be how they handle the Kavanaugh hearings over the next couple of days, because once again, uh, you've got the president pushing this guy on it to suggest that there is... Uh, some second thought going on here, I think, is, is a massive understatement given some of the accusations that are out there. And yes, they are only accusations at this stage. But I'm not hearing people like Mitch McConnell or anybody else saying, well, maybe we better hold off on this. In fact, just the opposite. Yeah. They're saying we should have a hearing and, and hear everybody out on this. Um, you, you've got the intersection of two movements here, if you will, Bill. You've got, of course, Mr. Trump and the conservative movement finding a, 
a poster child in Mr. Kavanaugh, a trained by Anthony Kennedy, who's the retiring justice, um, and, and seemed like he was coasting to a confirmation. And then, of course, you have the hashtag Me Too movement, uh, and now you have a woman accuser. Now, it's a, an issue that happened 35 years ago. It does seem to be isolated. There's not six women accusing him or 26 women accusing him. It seems to be one. Does that make a difference? No. Even one accusation is one accusation too much. She is also apparently willing to testify, and she is a person of sterling character herself. Uh, and so, again, drama on that front. Uh, just exactly what Mr. Trump didn't seem to want to need at this time. Well, th- there are some other things about some of the testimony that Kavanaugh has given already, too, that uh, people are saying, well, wait a second, it wasn't quite that way. And the documents, you know, that the, uh, in theory, your, your public record, all of your different uh, uh, pronouncements as a judge should be reviewed, but not all of the papers are being released. And in fact, you know, I'm hearing numbers like uh, when, when a, a Justice Elena Kagan was, uh, uh, was uh, put through this process, 97% of her papers were released. Sonia Sotomayor, when she went through this, 95% of her papers were released. And yet, in this case, it's something less than 10% for Mr. Kavanaugh. So there are some other things bogging it down. Nonetheless, I think that's a bit of a distraction to this. I don't think Christian Freeling cares less about the Supreme no, but Court. The, the, but the, the tact here is simply, well, we don't care about that. Uh, we just this is what the president wants, so that's what we're going to give him. Right, right. And, and if he's going to do that with with Kavanaugh, right. is he going to do it with NAFTA at the same time? Right. And so we got some high stakes poker and lots of drama coming up here. I, I again take great heart that the people who are at the center of this, uh, Mr. Lighthizer and Ms. Freeland, are not negotiating in public. They are not tweeting in public. Thank God they're not tweeting in public, and they're not sharing their thoughts. I would actually tell you this, going back to Washington is not a bad sign. Anytime you're talking, that's a good sign. I am absolutely certain when talks broke off last week, there were some proposals on the table and said, okay, I'll think about it over the weekend. You think about it over the weekend. Then let's get back together on Tuesday and talk about it some more. And, and I think they're getting closer and closer and closer. Now, there is other one other little wrinkle that happened last week, and that was that Mexico said um, they really want Canada to be part of this. But look, you know, if they can't, if they can't find a way, we're okay going as a two-party deal. I'm a little concerned about that. I'm, I'm concerned about that, in particular around this uh, dispute resolution mechanism, that would seem to imply that Mexico's okay with a dispute resolution mechanism that's based completely in the United States. That worries me a little. Now, also in fairness, in the last 23 years, Mexico, I don't think, has ever filed any complaint under NAFTA. Therefore, they don't really care how you resolve a complaint since they've never filed one. Uh, we have, and we do care. So, Maybe there's a little a little something going on there. And then, of course, I'm sure if a reporter stuck a microphone in somebody's face, well, I didn't really mean this, I meant something else. That's what I mean by drama. There's going to be statements, misstatements, clarifications. The key is to have the people at the table stay focused. All right. Last week when those talks broke off, uh, Christy Freeland actually left Washington to go and join the Liberal caucus out in Saskatchewan. And uh, the speculation was is that she had to report back to the prime minister yep. and, and get her marching orders. Okay, this is what they're doing. How should we respond? Mr. Prime Minister, uh, this was the speculation on the Sunday morning talk shows, of course, uh, re- you know, re- from Ottawa this past weekend. Well, what did he say to her? Did he say get a deal? Did he say no? You know what? I'm doing pretty well in, in the polls here by standing up to this guy. Let's rag the puck a little bit more. Wh- what do you think he's going to do here? Yeah, I, well, I think they want the deal. Uh, uh, as much as his poll numbers aren't too bad, Justin's got a 
shall we say, storm-filled fall as we head into it. It's a beautiful day today in Hamilton, but it's a storm-filled fall in Ottawa. Remember, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is far from being resolved what's going to happen there and the dispute between uh, uh, Alberta and British Columbia. How do you get two neighbors to kiss and make up? We have a new election going on, or excuse me, not a new election, just an election going on in Quebec. We saw the leaders debate the other night in English. First time there was ever an English language debate in Quebec. I thought that was quite interesting. French takes place later this week. Uh, that could be a change in government. Of course, we have Doug Ford now in, in Ontario, and he's opposing Justin's plans on... Uh, uh, climate change and the environmental agreement. So th there are a lot of other things that he's going to want to put his attention on. I think the marching order is, I want a deal. I don't want a deal at all costs, but I want a deal. Get us as close as you can, and when you feel you can't get any closer, let me know. And and I'm sure Christian Freeland brought in, well, how about scenario A and scenario B, scenario C? He probably prioritized those in some ways, and I think that's going to be the tone of these negotiations this week. I, I don't like to be the boy who cried wolf. I've been saying this now every week for the last month. I know we're really close. I still think it's possible we can have a deal. I, we could have a deal before this week is out. That's how close I think they are. They're, the other side of this from the political standpoint, and, and I understand that and, you know many Canadians feel as if, hey, way to go, Prime Minister, standing up to this bully. We get that. But if you if you do that at the expense of a deal, that can turn pretty quickly. Well, very much so. You know, again, to remind everybody, Canada's biggest trading partner, number one trading partner is the United States. We are also the United States' number one trading partner. Donald Trump doesn't always seem to remember that. I think he sometimes thinks it's China or Mexico, both very important to the American economy, but we're their number one partner, and it would have tremendous repercussions throughout. Now, if we didn't have a deal October 1, what does that mean? Well, we still are under NAFTA 1.0, so Trump, if he wanted to end that, he would have to then say, I'm giving you six months' notice, and if you don't sign NAFTA 2, then NAFTA 1 isn't going to exist anymore, and then even that, what does that mean? Do we go back to the auto pact, that would raise more questions. I think the cleanest, less turbulent route is to somehow find a way to get into NAFTA 2.0. But here's the other interesting thing, Bill. Uh, uh, we say uh, September 30th is the deadline because, in theory, written language is presented to Congress on October the 1st. Well, if you, you're still negotiating on September 29th, how would you have all the final language to put in front of Congress just two days later? Uh, so there is a point probably this week where that deadline would start to get into a bit of a challenge. Not because there isn't enough time, but because there isn't enough time to do all the writing of the official language that needs to go into the deal. But what's the greater fear from the Canadian standpoint here, Marvin? Is it no deal by October 1st, or is it the fact that if there's no deal, he comes down with auto tariffs? Yeah, that was the, it's not the no deal. He, talk, he talked about it again yesterday. Right. It's not the no deal. If we just go back to NAFTA 1.0, which is what we're operating in right now, that doesn't scare us at all. It is, what what's Trump's... Um, uh, what word do I want here? Penalty. What's Trump's penalty for not failing to get the deal in time? You might remember earlier this year, in April and May, he put tariffs on steel and aluminum on everybody else in the world, but not Canada and Mexico, as long as there was progress on NAFTA. When there was no progress on NAFTA by June 1st, that's when he changed his tune and said, okay, you guys, you're just talking us to death. I'm putting tariffs on you. This is his threat now, that if we don't get the deal, he'll put 25% tariffs on automobiles, whether it's finished goods or automotive parts or everything in between. And that would have detrimental effects. It would have detrimental effects in the United States, but it would also affect us. We would be back in recession by the summer of 2019. And if I'm Justin with an election in the fall of 2019, I, that's the last word I want to be talking about in an election campaign. So this is this is 
a, a tough decision for the for the liberals absolutely. in a situation like this. You got to know when to pull the plug on, on on this and simply say, okay, just get a deal then. Because if you go too far, it, it all blows up. The term we use is a hill to die on. You know, wh- where is your line that you say I've got to get to that line? If I get farther, that's fine, but I've got to get to that line. If I can't, then yes, I'm going to die. I'm going to give up on this. And, and I'm just not sure. We, we've talked about this before, Bill, when it comes to supply management, and in particular the dairy and the poultry industry. I think all we're negotiating now is the numbers. In other words, we're prepared to let more American produce or produce poultry into the country. We're allowed to. We're willing to let more milk into the country. The question is what volume. The Americans want it to be unlimited. We don't want that. The farmers don't want that. So what's the number? And I, I, I think we should be able to find that. I think the hill to die on really is a dispute resolution. Yeah. I, I don't want, I personally do not want a deal that if there's a dispute between Canada and the United States, it's settled in the American courts. I need a bipartisan, at least tripartisan, hopefully, court to hear this. And that would be my hill to die on. And, and is there going to be any flexibility there? Well, that's, and that's a good question too. You know, uh, you you maybe you have to find out why the Americans want to change. So, if I was negotiating this, if I was Christian Freeland, I'd be saying, Mr. Lighthizer, what's wrong with the current dispute resolution? What what what's bothering you? Why can't we just leave this clause unchanged? Well, they've lost a lot of them. That's well, that's what's wrong with it. Yeah, yes, but then that that begs the question: Are you actually filing the right, doing the right things? Anyway, you know, what bothers you, and what can we give you that will make you feel more comfortable about this process without throwing the clause completely away? And, and so, again, I think this is a question for the Americans. What's their hill to die on as well? What's, what's their must-have? Um, if, if you took Trump at his word, there's a number of things he said that Canada must give us that we haven't, and he's backed away from. So uh, it's hard to know with his rhetoric what is his hill to die on here. Well, especially if you want to follow his tweets, which is a rather onerous <laughs> task at, at the best of times. He seems to be spending a lot more time talking about supply management than he does about this dispute resolution. I, I can't recall that he's talked about that for weeks, uh, if not months. Yeah, fair so, enough. So I'm wondering, I, I'm wondering if that's even a priority or if it was just something they threw in there. Yeah, so that's a good question, Bill. I, I think supply management can get him votes in the fall. Uh, there are a number of farmers in the Midwest, pick your, pick your favorite place, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, maybe Nebraska, uh, because they do not have supply management in the states, each farmer can produce as much whatever item you want, as much corn, as much milk, as much poultry as they possibly can, and they can put it onto the market. The problem is that if they all produce to the maximum, they flood the market, drive the prices down. And we've seen poignant photos of American farmers simply dumping milk on fields because they can't find a market for it. So uh, they look at Canada and say, look, you're just over there. Why can't we ship some of our milk to you? Uh, And our answer is because we've more or less got enough milk to meet all of our demands right at the moment. Uh, I've had other people who've come up to me, Bill, since we do these talks and say to me, well, Marvin, I understand all that, but you know, I'm paying a dollar a bag more for milk than I need to. If we let that American milk in, I'm going to be better off by a dollar a bag. Yes, but then what about the farmers that might lose their farms and be thrown out? So it's a balancing act. That's why we just can't let it flood in here in any quantity they want. All the American farmers would do is ramp up even more. And on balance, the average American farm is bigger than the average Canadian farm. That's just an easier task for them to do than the Canadians. Again, I'm not sure I want a race to the bottom where I want every farmer competing against every other farmer to drive the price of milk or poultry or whatever down to the bargain basement. I need something that balances the needs of the farmers and the needs of the consumers. But you want to get into the politics of it. We just talked about how that might impact uh, the liberals up here when it comes to an election next year. The much closer midterm election is just a few weeks away now, of course, in the States. There's a political win 
win if he wins on supply management because that's going to have an impact on Wisconsin, New York State, places like I, I don't know that too many American voters are going to say, boy, that dispute resolution thing, that's not really in our – I don't think <laughs> exactly. they care. Exactly. I really don't think they care. It's not a bread and butter issue. And even the other thing that we're talking to them, so there's three at the moment. We've talked about two of them. The third is, of course, what we call cultural sector. That would include things like uh, uh, Canadian content on broadcasting. We establish a minimum Canadian content, et cetera. And the Americans say that's just nonsense and, and Verizon should come north of the border. And I think, again, we're prepared to let some of that happen. But those two, the dispute resolution and the cultural issues, don't get him any votes in the United States. But helping those farmers in those Midwestern uh, states or even Eastern states uh, get more markets for their products, that could win him some votes. And when those states, and those states are always seesaw battles, they're all razor-thin margins, 100 votes, 1,000 votes here or there can make all the difference in the world. Well, those states that we've just referenced here are the ones that really seem to turn the tide for him in that presidential election. I don't know that too many people expected him to win any of those, let alone all of them. Uh, so he's he's he owes them. That's really what this comes right. down to. Very much so. He owes them, and, and of course he needs to retain them, retain them both for the purposes in this election of the House and the Senate, and then ultimately if he has a re-election campaign to be re-elected into the presidency. Does Robert Lighthizer have a, uh, a a short list here as well? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he does. Uh, although, <laughs> if you to believe if you're to believe the book written by Bob Woodward uh, called Fear, which was supposed to be this revelation inside the White House, it might be a short list of his and uh, Wilbur Ross's creation. Maybe not necessarily a list of Trump's creation. Uh, as you know, in that book, they they've talked about how the administration actually has tried to isolate Trump, and and they're all doing good things, but they're doing them in spite of the president rather than in concert with the president. So uh, uh, I don't know. Mr. Lighthizer, again, keeps his keeps his powder very dry. I don't know what's on his short list. But yes, I think he and Wilbur, they've got their list. And if they're happy, they will sell it to the president and make him happy. It, yeah. I, I, from what I've read of the book as well, the Woodward book, it's, uh, the, the tact here is going to be, oh, no, 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 Mr. President, it is a good deal. And here's why. Yes. Yeah, and, and we and, got that. And, and we got that. And he'll believe it. Yeah. And he will because he won't read it. Of course he does. He has not, doesn't read any of these things. So that's why he's so easily led around from one side to another here. Exactly. So, so if we got the real question now is can Christian Freeland and I, by the way I think Christian Freeland is a wonderful negotiator and reads the room really well you know there's another term is in poker about reading the room reading your opponents when are they bluffing when are they serious I think she's really good at that and Lighthizer I'm not sure he was prepared for this rather short diminutive woman being as, as powerful as she is so I you know again I think there's good work going on here and there's it, every inch that's given is is hard fought and what have you I, I think we've got the potential for a deal I think Trump will sign and approve whatever it is Lighthizer gives him. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Hoping you're right. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for this today. I'll light a candle. Yeah, I think we all need to. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We welcome to the program right now Dermot Nolan. Dermot, of course, is a past winner of the Amelia's Irving Award, the highest honor of the Hamilton Law Association. Uh, longtime lawyer here in this community, and of course a good friend of uh, Roger Yachetti. Derbert, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. I'll, I'll ask you the same thing I think we're all asking ourselves. Uh, describe Roger Yachetti. You've known each other for so many years, and, and your, your careers were intertwined for so long. Uh, well, where do, where do you begin with Roger? I mean, Roger was... Uh, you 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 called him homegrown, which I think is uh, he'd love that. He he was homegrown. He was uh, through and through uh, quintessential Hamiltonian. Uh, he loved this city. He loved uh, this country. Um, he loved his Italian heritage. 
he was uh, he was uh, when you think about Roger, you think uh, how can how can one man um, be such a force uh, in so many areas? You know, a lot of people think of uh, Roger's involvement with the Tiger Cats, and that's what gets the headlines and so forth. But Roger was um, first and foremost. Um, uh, an outstanding lawyer. He 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 was uh, in his prime. You know, Roger. I would put Roger up against any lawyer in the country. He was a brilliant lawyer. He he was the gold medalist, uh, the top lawyer in the bar admission course when he was um, called to the bar. Uh, he was um, he was a, a bencher of the law society. He topped he topped the polls every time he ran for bencher in the province. He was beloved by his colleagues. Um, the wonderful sense of humor, charm, uh, just a delightful uh, bundle of energy. Uh, and uh, but that's you know that was the that was the the biggest part of his uh, professional and public life. But and of course the Tiger Cats. Uh, he he was a great sports fan. He he saved the Tiger Cats, no question about it. But people have to remember he was also huge in the arts. He was one of the real um, uh, rescuers of the Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah, he was uh, a great actor. <clears throat> people tend to not know that about him. I mean, great actor. <laughs> he he acted. Of course, he was in university plays when yeah. he was at Western. Yeah. Uh, I met his wife Cleta. As, as a matter of fact, I think they were in a production together. Yes, and yeah. I know he acted in some of the the, the Hamilton Lawyers Club well, plays that you put on, and, and he was good. All of the Hamilton Lawyer shows. Uh, he was he was good, and he loved it. He loved it. He was uh, huge in local politics. He was a very successful businessman. Uh, he was uh, a leader in his church. Uh, he was a leader in philanthropy. Uh, I mean, where where do you where do you stop? Uh, and you know, the, the thing about Roger, he was he was a, a competitor. Uh, he, he loved being a lawyer. He loved the fight. Uh, talk to me loved, about talk to me about that, Dermot. But because you've you've just outlined some of the things on his CV and uh, you know Queen's Council in '79 yeah. and and uh, founding, of course, the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association. Uh, this is this is Hall of Fame stuff, really, isn't it, in the legal profession? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if there were if there were such a thing as yeah. a Hall of Fame, uh, he, he'd be a no-brainer. Um, <clears throat> he was. You know, he loved winning. He he was a he was a fierce competitor. I'm glad uh, you brought that up because I've talked to some other lawyers that have, uh, well, in some cases, crossed swords with him. I guess in the courtroom, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I know Roger as an affable, friendly, lovable yeah. guy, and and as you say, a great a friend of the arts and everything. And they said, boy, he was a lion in the courtroom. He was a lion. He was a, he was delightful company, and he and he was a, you know, he he followed that old adage of Shakespeare to uh, to. Uh, um, uh, do as lawyers do, uh, um, strive mightily, but eat and drink as friends. I mean, he really was totally professional, uh, and and he treated his colleagues with respect. But boy, uh, he 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 was a fighter. And you know, one of the things I was thinking. Uh, I mean, it's a huge loss. I'm, it breaks my heart to 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 have lost him. But you know, Roger, Roger he goes out a winner. Um, he goes out. A champion, undefeated, really, because one of the things that in recent years I know Roger was struggling with was the thought of retirement. It he he abhorred that thought. He there's no way he wanted to leave 
the practice of law. He 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 couldn't he couldn't imagine himself not being a lawyer. And you know, uh, life has, life he's he sort of he's won that battle. He he went out a lawyer in in the saddle uh, with his boots on. You know, and uh, I think um, it's much too soon. But I think uh, he's probably pretty happy to go out that way rather than face the thought of uh, withering away in retirement. That that would not be Roger. So he goes out a winner, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and and uh, he was a winner all his life. Um, I, I loved him dearly, and I know that I, I speak for uh, most of the, uh, all of the legal community and certainly uh, anyone in this community who had anything to do with him. He was a treasure. He was a, a Hamilton treasure, and uh, and we'll miss him greatly. Dermot, as as you talk about the career, and I know that you've known Roger for many many years, uh, I've heard over the last couple of days now from a number of lo- younger lawyers so, that, that said, you know what, this is a guy that had a huge influence on me. Some of them worked in the firm, of course. Our, my good friend Ivan Marini, of course, uh, worked with Roger for many many years. But others that are saying, look, at he was he was the gold standard. He was what we wanted to aspire to. Well, one of the luckiest breaks in my life was that he hired me as an articling student. Uh, I mean, Roger was my mentor in the practice of law. I mean, he I used to tease, tease him and say he taught me everything I know. Uh, but uh, I wasn't alone in that. Uh, you know, he, he, he trained and mentored any number of really outstanding lawyers, many of several of whom stayed with him for his, uh, for his, in his firm. But others went on to become judges and, and prominent lawyers and, and leaders in their profession because gold standard's a good term. I mean, for the gold medalist, you know, to uh, to um, to imagine that he he really he taught us uh, much more than just the nuts and bolts of practicing law. He taught us how to be good citizens, uh, how to be uh, um, how to be uh, obviously. Um, good and 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 honorable lawyers, um, and and uh, how to fight, uh, how to fight, and and uh, he he was a he was a wonderful mentor, and you know just delightful company, uh, just delightful company. How was he in the courtroom? Uh, did he did he enjoy that? The, being well, in the he, arena, he loved the courtroom, um, and in his as I say in his prime, he 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 was unmatched. Uh, I, I mean, I I remember the first time I I went uh, down with him to the court of appeal, and uh, uh, I was uh, awestruck to be in that place for the first time. And uh, he, um, <clears throat> the chief justice, and the three judges appear on the bench, and they look down, and there's a whole whole room full of uh, lawyers, and uh, everybody's uh, ready to ready to go, uh, and. Uh, the chief justice looks down. He says, "Well, uh, who, who, who have we got here? I see we have Mister Yaketti here," and I was <laughs> I was so impressed with that. Now, of course, that was that was because Roger had had uh, uh, clerked for the chief justice because, as the top student in the province, uh, he was uh, hired for his first year uh, by the chief justice to to be his right hand uh, uh, assistant. And uh, so uh, he was moving in pretty, pretty impressive circles right out of the gate. And he was a, a huge uh, force at the uh, Law Society of Upper Canada, as it then was. Uh, that is the governing body for the, for the, for the province uh, for lawyers. Uh, 
he was uh, elected as I mentioned bencher uh, and and that's you know that's those are the leaders of the profession they mm-hmm. govern our profession and Roger was one of the most respected benchers in the province and he ultimately became a life bencher so he died a bencher um, and uh, he contributed enormously to to the pro- to the profession uh, not just in Hamilton but province-wide um, but uh, in the courtroom um, he was uh, strong, smart. I mean, he was one of the most brilliant lawyers uh, there were, and uh, and uh, and and tough but fair and very composed. I mean, he had a he had a um, a great presence, uh, which is a, a great gift to have in the courtroom to have that presence. So that when you speak and when you're questioning witnesses and when you're making your arguments, you your your listeners are riveted by you by by virtue of your presence and the intelligence and articulation of what you say, and he had that. It was a it was one of his many many gifts. Dermot Nolan, uh, thanks so much as we uh, reminisce and remember a great Hamiltonian, Roger Yaketi. Thanks for this today, Dermot. Well, it's it's uh, it's an honor to speak about Roger, um, and uh, thank you for honoring him with uh, w- with the commentary. Appreciate it. Thanks again. Derm- okay, Bill, good to talk to you. Dermot Nolan, uh, also a past winner of the Amelia Serving Award, as Roger was. Uh, I want to bring Ron Foxcroft into the conversation. Ron, of course, is uh, the founder and CEO of Fox 40 International. Uh, because Dermot touched on, on Roger's association with the Tiger Cats, and, and to suggest that it was not insignificant, I think, is, is a massive understatement. Uh, Ron, thanks so much for the time. I'm glad you could jump in and talk about uh, Roger and, and his great contribution to the city and to the Tiger Cats and really to the CFL. Because there's, there were ramifications to what he did, weren't there? Oh, they there really were, and I just need to uh, reinforce uh, what Dermot said so well and uh, so articulate. Uh, Rogers' work with the uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats was uh, monumental, and uh, Dermot used the term that he was a legend. Well, he was a legend not only in Hamilton with respect to all the glorious work that he did for the Hamilton Tiger Cats, but for the Ontario or for the Canadian Football League. And Bill, just to uh, leapfrog on what uh, Dermot started to say, so articulate, um, I was at the Ontario Law Society a few months ago for a ceremony to honor somebody that absolutely worshipped uh, Roger Yaketi, Jim Simba. Yep. Uh, Dr. Simba was being honored uh, as the recipient of the Lincoln Alexander Award. Well, many of the esteemed benchers were at that ceremony, Bill, and um, I was sort of uh, out of my comfort zone being at the Ontario Law Society. I know nothing about law, as Roger and we, he has a great sense of humor. I used to joke with Roger, you know nothing about basketball, Roger, and I know nothing about law. But what gave me instant acceptance at the Ontario Law Society with the benchers? They asked me where I was from, and I said, I'm from Hamilton. And they said, do you know Roger Yaketi? And uh, I was with Jim Simba, and the minute you said, I know Roger Yaketi, stand back, two ears, and listen 
to the accolades from the lawyers and from the benchers and from the judges at the Ontario Law Society. Uh, it was um, it, it was quite inspiring, and and of course Dermot spoke so well. His work with the Tiger Cats bill was legendary, and and what it did when when he was um, uh, took on the project single handedly to restore the the glory of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, which they had fallen into some very difficult times, immediately because it was Roger Yaketti. The project had credibility. We need to talk. I guess put this in context a little bit for those who may not know uh, that uh, the you know the the CFL and, and the Tigers in particular, of course, had gone through some, as you said, some pretty dire financial circumstances. Uh, a few years before that, in 1988, uh, I guess it was. Uh, Mayor Bob Morrow had talked to David Braley, and, and David, of course, uh, put his heart and soul into reviving the franchise and, and almost won a Grey Cup in 1989 with that. But there was a recession in the early 1990s. Fox, you know all about that. A lot of yep. people that were in business do. Uh, David had some financial problems. He was throwing money hand over fist into the football operation uh, and not getting much in return. So he had to make a decision to simply say, I have to step away from this. Uh, That's exactly. And at the same time, the Montreal Alouettes had gone bankrupt and were out of the league. So from a nine-team league, we were down to eight. If the Tiger Cats had folded, I, I've talked to Jeff Giles, who, of course, worked in the CFL office. We know Jeff from his time at McMaster as the AD there. Uh, he said, look, if the Cats folded, the league's dead. You can't play a seven-team league. We, the whole CFL would have died. So that that's how important it was when, when Mayor Mora went to Roger and said, Roger, you got to step in. And and kudos to Mayor Morrow. He knew who to go to. He knew that if he went to Roger Yaketti, some very good things would happen because of uh, Roger's respect uh, within the entire, not just football, but the entire community, the business community, the the law community, the lawyers, uh, uh, everybody connected with the community. And Roger single-handedly rallied things. Now, going back, yes, David Braley. Um, what a contributor, and he poured his heart and soul into this thing, into the Tiger Cats, and if you recall the Tony Champion uh, catch in 1989, and John Gregory and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders beat us uh, after that, and then, and of course, uh, we didn't get back to the Grey Cup, but then Roger stepped in, and Bill, uh, few people know this, but he rallied a board, a group of leaders, in the community, and we would meet at Roger's office after work, uh, honestly, three days a week from 6 o'clock at night till sometimes midnight. Uh, 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 Larry Smith, the commissioner at the time, and they had just gone through that uh, U.S. expansion. And many people didn't realize, but the franchise fees that came from U.S. expansion actually kept the CFL operating. Uh, I, wanna, I, wanna, uh, I want to ask you about that. I want, can you hang on yeah, for a few minutes? I, I sure can. We, ha- we have to do a short break, but I want to talk to you about how Roger did that. Yeah. Uh, uh, because there was a, he had a unique gift that, uh, that both you and Dermot have referred to, and it certainly came in good stead. So let's, He was a salesman. You bet. Let's, let's hold on for just a second. We'll come back in a few minutes after a short time out as we honor uh, the, the legend and uh, the, the uh, 
fabulous contributions of uh, Roger Yachetti. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, well, I want to spend a couple more minutes talking about uh, the late Roger Yachetti and, uh, and his contribution uh, to community, obviously, but uh, to the Hamilton Tiger Cats and uh, to that end, of course, we've asked uh, Ron Foxcroft uh, to hang on for just a few more minutes. Ron, thanks. I really appreciate it. But it's a uh, it's it's an important time, I think, to be talking about a, a guy who made such a significant contribution. Uh, let me ask you now, and I want to go back to those days when he took over the football team, Mayor Bob Moore approached Roger. Now, this is a guy that's already busy. I mean, let's be honest oh, about yeah. it. He's, he's running, you know, one of the biggest law firms, one of the busiest law firms in the city. Uh, he's got responsibilities, as you mentioned, uh, in other facets of law, too, with the, uh, the Law Society of Upper Canada. Yet he decides, uh, after talking to Mayor Morrow, to take on this task. But you, it the, was it, enormous. But, but the, 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 they were swimming in red ink at the time, couldn't find any financial backers, uh, and Roger, I guess, started making phone calls. Is that how this worked? He really did. Now, remember, too, Bill, uh, uh, Roger was steadfast and loyal to his family. He had a very busy family life, family first, and he took on this responsibility, as you and Dermot uh, well said. He was already a busy person. But, you know, Roger, a lot of people did not realize this. Roger was multi-talented. Not only was he a leader, but he could have been a teacher, he could have been a professor, he could have been a salesperson, because a sales personified was the trait that he needed to restore the glory of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And, and you know, Bill, I used to go on those calls with Roger to convince people that, yes, we're a football team, but we're more than a football team. We are really important to the economic future of this wonderful city of Hamilton. And and Roger was uh, not only a platinum-plated lawyer, he was a platinum-plated, persuasive salesperson with enormous credibility. Now, I would go on those calls with him, and these people would take one uh, one look at Roger and see his perseverance, his sacrifice. Bill, as you know, he personally, out of his own wallet, covered some of those payrolls during those difficult times Mm -hmm. with the Tiger Cats. And the people would look at him and just see uh, it was a status symbol if you knew Roger Yachetti. And they'd say, well, if Roger Yachetti multi-talented lawyer, steadfast and loyal to his family, can sacrifice and persevere and is so dedicated to the Tiger Cats, there was instant credibility. And they would buy tickets, they would buy sponsorships. Now the other thing that Roger... But you guys were under the gun. I mean, we oh. Larry Smith, who was the commissioner, of course he's now a senator in, in Ottawa, but when, when Larry Smith basically gave you guys a deadline, I mean, he said you had to sell 12,500 season tickets and a million dollars in corporate sponsorship, or he was going to pull the plug on the franchise. Oh, oh, yeah. Larry was at every meeting. We would meet usually Monday, Thursday, and, and then Larry was there, and he'd drive home to Aurora at midnight at night, but... Little people uh, knew this about Roger. He was multi-talented at hiring people. He always surrounded himself with smart people. He hired John Michaluk. John Michaluk was uh, vaccinated with enthusiasm and (laughs) bled the Hamilton Tiger Cats. They were an insurmountable team. Now, 
many of your listeners would not realize this. When we had that deadline imposed upon us, 12,500 tickets, Roger and John would be at the old Tiger Cat office at Houston between King and, and Maine yep. until 12 midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. People would come in after their shifts at 11 o'clock at night. And who was behind the counter? Roger Yaketti and John Michalak selling season tickets to make that deadline. He was just, uh, it, it's really hard, Bill, to find the adjectives to describe Roger and to describe the respect that he had in Hamilton, like when I went to the Ontario Law Society and mentioned I'm from Hamilton. Right off the bat, Roger Yaketti. He was uh, and and he he was a teacher, Bill. He taught us in business perseverance, sacrifice, dedication, and loyalty. The other thing I loved about Roger, because we had a lot of fun together, was his sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his um, his friend, Father Lou Joya from Manhattan, we would always joke. Father Lou would come up uh, whenever the Knicks played the Raptors and go to the game with me, and we'd always joke, Roger. You're a great lawyer. You're a great family man. You're multi-talented. You know nothing about basketball. And Roger would then have a belly laugh for hours on end uh, with Father Lou, myself, and, and of course, his wonderful family. Great family, a great family that we're so supportive. You know, one of the things I remember, because I was around then, obviously, I was yeah, the, the stadium announcer for many years and, and got, sure got to know John. And John, by the way, Michelle gave up a, a very promising career, a very good career with the Royal Bank to, to, to run this thing for Roger and try to help out as much as he could. But but Roger was working so hard at that. This is called the drive for 95. That's what you guys called it. Yes, we Yeah, he, he actually suffered a heart attack. I mean, running his law practice and getting all this stuff done. Uh, I, I still remember when we heard the news here at CHML one morning, he, Roger got rushed to the hospital, he had a heart attack. He was back to work two weeks later. He was. Not only did he sacrifice his health, uh, time with his family, but his checkbook. Uh, there was so much about Roger. The other thing, beyond the Tiger Cats, Bill, you know, the Tiger Cats got enormous publicity for Roger. But remember, whatever uh, Roger supported lent credibility to the project or to the initiative. And that goes with Opera Hamilton, the Philharmonic, Theater Aquarius, Festitalia, and also to his colleagues in, in the business of law, Ivan Marini and Asgar Manic. I mean, they could go on for hours and days talking about the, the great contribution that... Uh, Roger May to the Law Society. Um, this bill is very hard for many of us that loved Roger. We, we all wished we could have spent more time with Roger because in some way he touched this city, he touched us, he mentored us, and like I say, uh, he, was, he was also an amazing actor, as you know, he he took part in the uh, Law Society performances at Theater Aquarius, and many of us said if Roger had not chosen law, 
as his life career, he could have gone to Hollywood and been successful. He could have been successful at anything. We, we've got to jump in here. There's so much more we could talk about, but, uh, well, we should mention, I guess, just to wrap this up, uh, he is a member, of course, of the Hamilton Gallery of Distinction, and, and, uh, and, and I think that pretty much signifies uh, what an incredible person this guy was. Ron, I really want to appreciate, or do appreciate, rather, you taking some time to reminisce about uh, uh, your dear friend and, and a great Hamiltonian. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you very much, Bill. Ron Foxcroft, of course, from uh, Fox 40, remembering uh, his good friend, uh, Roger Yachetti. Uh Listen, uh, I want to segue into something else now, because I told you at the beginning of the hour that uh, we wanted to honor a great Hamiltonian who was born and raised here, of course, Roger Yachetti, and another who adopted this city as his home. And, uh, well, he is, a, frankly, he's a historical figure. Uh, Scott Radley writes about it in the Hamilton Spectator today. The, the piece is called Bernie Custis, All Class, now has a Hamilton school named after him. Now, Scott Radley joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Scotty, thanks for holding on. I really appreciate you being with us today. No problem, Bill. This is an honor that is, I think is long overdue. Uh, and as you wrote about in, in your piece in the spec today, not without controversy, and that kind of surprised a lot of people. Well, uh, yeah, I, and you know what? I mean, look, I, I want to, the school board ultimately got it right. Yeah. And, and so how it got there, uh, yeah, there were some bumps and, and 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 even the bumps. I mean, look, the, the names that they, the other names they'd suggested are not poor names. They're they're names that that you know. There was one of uh, Shannon Kustachin, who's a an indigenous girl who fought for a school in Attawapiskat and is and did amazing things. But Bernie Custis, when you think of Hamilton, when you think of uh, uh, historic figures, trailblazers, educators, he was an educator for thirty years. All the things plus right across the street from the stadium, it just, it makes all the sense in the world. And, and, you know, thank goodness that this one, that they did this one right. It was, they got it right. We, we, from the football standpoint, and, and I know you touched on it in the piece, but just for those who may not know the whole story, Bernie, of course, was the first black football player to play quarterback anywhere in anywhere. North America, anywhere. Yep. Uh, when he came up here and played for Cara Voyles and the Hamilton Tiger Cats uh, back in the early 1950s. Uh, not his only position, by the way, but he did play uh, at quarterback. Uh, but but I'm, I'm glad that you filled out the picture, though, in, in the piece that you wrote for the spec today, Scott, because uh, there were some people when this discussion was going on about how that school should be named and for whom it should be named, that looked at him and said, well, you know, I think one of the trustees actually said, look, it's only because we're near the stadium and he was a football player. Uh, that person doesn't understand Bernie Custis and doesn't understand the contribution he made. It, goes, it went well beyond football. Well, the point that they made is, would this school, would we be talking about Bernie Custis if the school was not right here across from the stadium? And their point I, I would have. Well, yeah, and, and their point was that, they, I mean, they were lobbying for a different name. They had a different one that they felt strongly about, and that's fine. I, I applaud passion. I applaud people who are engaged rather than apathetic and have an opinion. That's good. Uh, so, but the two points are, first of all, it is across from the stadium, all right, so there's no sense talking in hypotheticals. It is there and will be there for the foreseeable future unless one of them falls down, and we hope that doesn't happen. And the other part is, regardless, Bernie Custis is, he literally checks off every single box that if you are the school board or if you're someone from this city that you would want to be honoring. We can start with the, the more modern ones, and that is the fact that he was a minority who overcame racism, he, he overcame a lack of opportunities, he came to Canada. Hamilton gave him the first chance that no other city in the world 
would give him. That's something we should be proud of. That's something that he should be proud of. He was wildly successful. He's in more halls of fame than I can count. He was a great cup champion. He was a winner at that. He went on to be a coach and was a winner at that. And Bill, over the last number of months that I've been writing about this, I have heard from more Bernie Custis players, guys who worked under him or were helped by him, and to a man, and in this case, because he taught, he coached football, they're men, they all say, Bernie changed my life. He did something for me somewhere along the way that changed my life. Then he becomes a teacher, an educator, a principal, a vice principal at a number of schools in this area. And I've heard from innumerable people, men and women, who had him, who say, he changed my life. He understood. He got us. He was a great man. You go through all these things, a trailblazer, a hero, a winner, a teacher, a, a, an example, a role model, a mentor, go down the list. And he literally hits every single box that you would want. To, to me, it, it was a no-brainer. And, and again, I, I go back, I give credit to the school board. It took a little while to get there, but they got there, and good for them. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, this is not cast aspersions on any of the other people that they no. were talking about, because they're, they're all worthy, and, and I'm sure we'll find places to, to honor all of them, and as, as we should. But but I, I've had the same response that you have over the last number of months since we've been talking about this. Uh, people that said, you know, because Bernie was, was such a humble man. I mean, he, he didn't say, guess what I just did for uh, Scott Radley. To, he didn't do that. He just, he did it. It would be a conversation he'd have with a student that was having a rough time or facing challenges at home or, or, or academically, whatever the case might be. Put them in touch with somebody. Offer them, uh, uh, you know, to be a conduit, a, a program to get them back on the right track. And uh, and he served as an example that way, and he did it quietly all the time. Maybe that was part of the problem. Bernie didn't uh, beat his own drum or blow his own horn, but boy, everybody who was in contact with him certainly has stories about how wonderful he was and how he changed their lives. Absolutely, and 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 maybe the best example. And you t- I'm glad you brought John Williams back into yeah. the conversation. Uh, John Williams Jr. That is, uh, yeah, who, not the guy who wrote the movie music. <laughs> no, no, but actually, John Williams. Well, John's father played for the Tiger Cats. Uh, you know, back in in the day, and uh, and of course, John Jr. came back up here and played for the Cats. But what a great example! I mean, John himself, John Williams Jr., who you talk about here, he's the godson of Bernie Custis. Uh, John has, uh, I guess, taken after his godfather uh, because John has done some incredible work with uh, with uh, challenged youth in the inner city over the last number of years at Sir John indigenous A. McDonald, youth. and now he's working with indigenous youth. Uh, uh, Bernie, we'd be proud of him, and, 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 and that's exactly the sort of example I think that that really personifies what Bernie Custis has done and how he has, I think, probably influenced so many different people and inspired them. I, I agree, Bill, and and. Look, there's one thing in this whole thing, and Bernie Custis, like, let's just put him aside for a second, because he's on his pedestal, and he should be, and all the good things that we could say, we don't have enough time to go into them all, but there's one other point with this, and I, I, I believe it's important. I don't know that everyone else agrees with me, but I absolutely believe it's important, and that is, there are very few opportunities that we have in this city where a building or a park or something comes along that we can name it after somebody we don't this doesn't happen every day we may have a school every three years and a a public building or an arena or something occasionally i really believe that we have to take those opportunities in hamilton to honor hamiltonians I i unless there is the most unbelievably out there obvious case and the one name that comes to mind would be terry fox that would have been an example once upon a time. But otherwise, we, they're not going to be in northern Ontario 
naming things after Hamilton heroes. We have very few opportunities, and we have a lot of people, not exactly like, but in some ways like Bernie Custis, who have done amazing things for this community. And they don't have to be an athlete. That's, that's, I mean, it could be, we've heard about naming something after Martin Short and Eugene Levy, or after volunteers, or Nathan Cirillo, which we had a, a park named yep. after not that long ago. We have these people in our community who have done amazing things. We can't, in my mind, we can't be passing up the opportunity to use our rare chances to actually name them, honor them, remember them, and make sure that down the road, kids coming along, like will happen now with Bernie Custis Secondary, because I'm sure there will be a display and a plaque and something else so they know we can't pass up the opportunities to have them remembered in their community. That, that, just, that seems to me that it would be wildly out of line if we were to do that. Well, and we have to put this in, in reality here, too, and in perspective, uh, because I know that when, you know, arenas like, well, Cops Coliseum, if I'll use that as an example, uh, naming rights come into play when you talk about larger sure. facilities, football stadiums, and, and, and larger arenas like that. But that's just a, an economic reality of the day, because those naming rights actually pay for operational costs, and that's, everybody goes to that. But there are other situations, like schools, smaller arenas, uh, you are one of the strongest advocates for honoring uh, the great Harry Howell. Uh, that finally happened. Uh, another name that pops into me, and I know we're kind of getting off on an athletic uh, genre here, but uh, you know, when is the city of Hamilton going to honor Russ Jackson? Uh, well, you know, they, he was there at the game again on to. Saturday. What's that? They say they're going to. There's a new park going up um, in uh, Ward Seven, I believe, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. And it's they've now it's 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 moving along. There's a football field up there, and it's going to be named after Russ Jackson. So. You know, because uh, Russ is in very much the same vein as Bernie Custis. Yes. Obviously, yeah. a local guy went to Westdale. McMaster, of course, was a, a superstar, uh, not just one of the best Canadian quarterbacks ever in Canadian football, one of the best quarterbacks, period, but mm. also an educator, a teacher, a principal uh, who had a great influence on so many kids' lives. And I, Russ was there, of course, at the game. He was down there being introduced at halftime, I guess, with the Hall of Fame inductees. And I figure, man, we got to do something to honor our our best, and and he is one of our best. And as I say, and you're right, we've just named three athletes, and that is not exclusive, though, because, again, there are many people in this community. And we do a very good job, Bill, for better or for worse. We do an exceptional job naming things after politicians. That, that generally flies through like a hot knife through butter when it goes in front of the, the council or wherever yeah. else. Politicians, yeah. there never seems to be a problem, and in some cases that's, Totally fine. One of the names, actually, funny enough, one of the names that was in consideration and never really got any traction in this one was Bob Morrow for mm-hmm. the school. Nonetheless, there are plenty of other people and plenty of other lines of work or lines of endeavor. This is not me or you, I don't think, or anyone else saying, oh, they all have to be athletes. To the contrary, it just happens in this case that you had a man who was not only an athlete, and that's what he will in some ways be remembered for. But he well, also did a lot of other things, and he fits in that geographic area, in that school right there. It, there could not have been a better fit. It was the literally perfect possible fit for that spot. And the best example, I know we got to run, is uh, the building right beside that, the Bernie Morelli uh, Senior Center. I mean, Bernie, uh, of course, the late uh, city councillor, uh, worked ex- exhaustively with uh, seniors for many, many years, and especially in his uh, hometown in that area. So, I mean, that that's a very apt 
uh, I think, uh, recognition of, of his contribution. And you're right, we need to do more of that. And, and, and we need people like run, Scott Bradley. Is that going to be the Bernie zone now? We have the Bernie Filoni way with Bernie Morelli Center and Bernie Custis High School. It's going to be the Bernie zone or something. I don't know. But, but it all fits. Somebody, somebody will think of that, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, you can hear Scott every night at 6 o'clock here on CHML. And, of course, read him in the spec. Thanks so much again, Scott. Anytime, Bill. Scott Bradley from the spec and CHML's uh, 6 till 8 o'clock show here on uh, Monday to Friday. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.